Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone, depending on where you're joining from. Um, welcome to ODI. I'm Sara Pantriano, ODI's Chief Executive. Um, before we get started, a small apologies for those who were planning to join us in person at ODI offices. Today, uh, we had to move the, the um, conversation online because of the rail strikes that are currently affecting the UK. But I'm truly delighted to be able to um, hold the conversation anyway and to be joined in conversation by Her Excellency, Her Excellency Fatou Bensouda. Um, Dr. Bensouda is the High Commissioner of the Gambia to the UK and was, of course, formerly Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Um, she has served as the Gambia's Minister of Justice, as the Gambia's Attorney General, and has also worked for several years on the United Nations Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I think throughout her career, Dr. Bensouda has worked to advance accountability, and she's been particularly focused on the importance of unreported crimes, um, you know, such as sexual um, agenda-based violence, atrocities against children, but also deliberate destruction of cultural heritage. But today, our conversation will focus on international criminal justice. Um, that's an area that Dr. Bensouda knows extremely well. And in, particularly, in particular, we'll be discussing the many challenges that are still uh, facing the International Criminal Court as it enters its third decade since its funding in Rome in 2002. Um, I will spend the first half hour together um, asking a few questions you know, to Dr. Bensouda, but then there will be an opportunity for all of you who are following us online to ask questions. Um, you can post your questions in the events chat. Um, that's just below the video uh, live stream. Um, and then I'll try and, and sort of um, take as many as uh, we can and we'll you know, get them answered during the Q&A seg segment of the conversation later. But in the meantime, please do help us amplify the conversation on Twitter, tagging ODI, that's ODI underscore global, and uh, using the hashtag ODI Bensuda. Well, let's get started. Um, Dr. Bensuda, if you reflect back on your tenure with the ICC, What's the legacy you think you've left um, upon the institution? And, and what are you most proud of? Um, Sarah, thank you very much, firstly. And uh, thank you for um, having me on this platform um, uh, to, be, uh, to allow me to be able to discuss my time at the ICC. Um, upon reflection, I, um, I always say that it is... Uh, it is uh, a job that I will do it again. Um, and this is despite the challenges that uh, uh, the institution has, uh, the very many challenges uh, that the institution has and which it has also faced during my, uh, my tenure. But I think what I am most fr proud of uh, is that we were able to withstand the pressures that were put on the on the institution, especially the political one, once we were able to withstand that, and we were always able to say that uh, the law is first, the law must rule, and amongst all the considerations that we have uh, under the Rome Statute to run an institution like that, politics is not one of them. 
I believe this is a very clear message that under my tenure, I have been able to demonstrate at great personal costs, at, at great uh, uh, pressures that we have put on me. Uh, but despite that, I was able to say, and I was able to live with my team, the, the fact that we were not going to politicize the court. We were not in any way going to have other considerations that would politicize the court. Because that would mean, for me, how I saw it is that that would mean probably the end of the court. And uh, because it's a slippery slope. If you have considerations, especially political considerations in doing your work, this could be very, very dangerous. And I was able to hold up that. And uh, throughout my tenure, I have been able to demonstrate that. So that is something that really I think is a legacy that has put uh, again, firmly, the International Criminal Court on the map, on the map, and uh, for also taking very difficult decisions. Decisions that uh, maybe would uh, uh, perhaps other people would think twice about taking, but I thought it had to be taken for the credibility of the institution, and I, I did. So this is something that I'm really uh, very, very proud of. And rightly so. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the court is now 20 years old. It'd be interesting to hear whether you think the court is stronger or weaker than you would have hoped um, it would be at this point. And, and you talk about the challenges, you know, it would also be interesting to hear yeah. how it thinks, how do you think it can actually do better to hold perpetrators to account, especially the high-profile ones? Well, you, you see, I... I... I talked about the challenges. But today, I, I think I can proudly say that uh, the court is, uh, is stronger. This is, this is what I believe uh, has happened over the, over the years. Of course, in the first 10 years of the court's existence uh, with my predecessor, he had also done a lot to put the court on the map. But the challenges that were faced during my time during my tenure were formidable, were really formidable and having uh, very powerful states uh, coming after the court, imposing sanctions of the court, on the court, especially on me personally as a prosecutor of the ICC for daring to take certain cases, which I only did not out of there, but because the law uh, permitted me, authorized me to do so. And I, and I did it. And I did everything in accordance with the, with the law. But the court was tested. The court was tested. The, the office was tried and tested. And I think in the end, the office came out of it much stronger than we were before. Much stronger in the sense that we were able to withstand those pressures. And we were still able to do the work that we were set, set, set out to do. So this uh, in itself is something that I believe uh, the court and the office of the prosecutor that I led is something that we can be very, very proud of. As I said, despite all the pressures, the challenges, the personal cost, everything, the court came out much stronger and the office came out much stronger than we found it. So I believe I left a much more um, <clears throat> organized office, much more strategically poised, 
to, to handle uh, some of the cases, as you said, high profile cases that would probably put the, the court in a very, very difficult positions and difficult uh, decisions were taken. They had to be taken. And I'm glad that we were able to take those decisions. You, you certainly did take difficult decisions. Let's explore these challenges that put the court to the test a bit more in detail. I mean, you know, the SEC before your tenure was often accused of being prejudiced against Africa because of you know the number of cases that had been brought um, against Africans. But in 2020, following the investigations of war crimes in Afghanistan, the US imposed sanctions. You, know, you were referring to that, I'm sure, actually on you as a specially designated national, you know, they blocked your assets, they prevented travel for you to the US. I mean, this is a designation that, you know, and, and penalties are usually meted out to terrorists. And, and I remember US Secretary of State, you know, Mike Pompeo, justifying, you know, these, these actions against you as the chief prosecutor of the court um, by claiming that you were specifically targeting Americans. Um, so I just wanted to ask you whether these perceptions of double standards be that against Africans or against, you know, this sort of uh, particular sort of states have impacted on the credibility of, of the court, whether, you know, the efforts that you put in place to challenge them have worked. Mm -hmm. um, you, you see, that is one of, the, one of the challenges, the main challenges that the court has faced over the years. Um, you rightly mentioned that uh, there was a time that this perception that ICC is Africa biased was very much on the table. And uh, we as a court have received um, a lot of pushback from the African continent itself. And you can imagine myself being an African from the African continent and leading such an institution and being accused of uh, targeting Africa, my own continent, it is something that was quite difficult to live with. But I, I in the end, I, I said that, you know, I had to do what I had to do, what the law had permitted me and authorized me to do. Firstly, I want to say that that accusation that Af um, ICC was biased against uh, Africa is not a legitimate accusation, I'm, I'm sorry to say. It is not legitimate at all. And uh, unfortunately, the propaganda had gone so, so much around uh, the African continent. It was a deliberate propaganda to discredit the ICC that it was used. But there were no factual basis, actually to show that ICC is going after Africa. And I say this because if you look at uh, what happened, um, today, Africa as a region is the biggest region that has signed and ratified the Rome Statute. We have, uh, um, I think, over one third or two thirds of the African continent are part of the ICC, more than any other regional bloc in the world. So there are so many states parties on the African continent, first and foremost. And the jurisdiction of the ICC is that uh, it is complementary to national jurisdictions. So if national jurisdictions are not trying these crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, if they are not trying these cases, they can either refer them to the ICC, which they are a member of, or do them, them, do the cases themselves. But if they are not doing it, it is not an option that nothing will be done for these states parties. 
And if you look at all the African states, the cases that ICC has on the African continent, most of them, if not all, but two, were referred by the African states themselves to the ICC, by the African states. And people tend to forget that. It was actually the Af those African states themselves asking the ICC to intervene in those cases, whether it is in Uganda, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Central African Republic. Um, in, in the case of Libya and Sudan, it was the UN Security Council that requested the ICC to intervene. In Cote d'Ivoire and uh, in, in Central African Republic, I said that in several cases, that the ICC has in Africa, it was referrals from the ICC, from the African states who are part of the ICC. So it cannot turn around now and say that it is uh, ICC that is coming after the, these African states. It is actually the African states, I would say, that are inviting or coming after the ICC. So this, this was, that's why I mean, well, that's what I meant when I said that it was not factual based it was merely meant to discredit the court. But I am glad that uh, in, in 2016, 2017, we were also able to do a, a big counter campaign to, to really clarify things in the minds of the leadership, as well as people on the African continent, that this propaganda is not true. And we were able to demonstrate it. And I think today we are in a much better place uh, as I left the ICC regarding this Africa, this so-called Africa bias, because I believe that people are now beginning to understand that ICC is not coming after the African continent. On the other hand, it is only doing its duties and responsibilities as mandated under the Rome Statute. And I believe this recognition is, uh, is now there. Um, when it comes to um, ICC doing its legitimate work, I, I can tell you that wherever the court goes, we will be, the court will have this pushback. And this again was amply demonstrated when I uh, requested the judges to open the case in uh, uh, Afghanistan. There was a big pushback that, uh, that ICC is uh, now going after because I requested from the judges that I also wanted to look into the conduct of the US in, in Afghanistan. Of course, you have mentioned the sanctions, uh, the then president and Mike Pompeo, uh, the, the, the foreign secretary would not hear of that. So I was sanctioned as a result. But also there, there was the case that uh, um, has been in the docket, which was referred to the ICC by Palestine and which I had examined with my team. And I requested the judges to, to look into the, the matter because I just did not want to take the case by myself in my office, but I requested the judges to, uh, under Article 19, to uh, decide whether I was in the right path, doing the right thing. Uh, uh, that's, the, that's the best way to, to explain it. And the judges later came back and agreed with me. But that also, I think, um, has uh, caused uh, a lot of unfortunate pushback against me personally, but also against the court. Um, and both from the US and of course from, uh, from Israel. And as I said, uh, I believe that the nature of what, we, what ICC does will always generate pushback depending on where ICC is. So we've, saw, we've seen it in Africa. We've also seen it in, 
Venezuela, because I, I, I was also handling a, a case in Venezuela. And we've, we've seen it in various parts of, uh, of the world where the ICC is investigating. So that is one big challenge that the court faces, the pushback and the politicization of any decision that the prosecutor may take. It is always, according to them, based on politics that the court is deciding in a particular manner, which is not, which is not the case, which is definitely not the case. Another main challenge that we face is cooperation. The court was built in such a way that you need to have cooperation before you can actually do your work. And that cooperation is actually in, embedded in the statute itself. Um, the ICC will do its work, but the states, by joining the ICC, have vowed to cooperate with the court and to assist the court with logistics uh, during its investigations, also with arrests once the court issues uh, warrants of arrests. These are, these, are, these are some of the difficulties that we have faced. And for a long time, also, the budget was a problem throughout. Until I left the ICC, I have been every year talking about the budget and asking for an increased budget to be able to do all that is in the case docket of the ICC. I, uh, I, I was not uh, able to really get the, the budget that was needed for the work to be done. So we, we had to make do with what was uh, available at the time. I think that has changed a lot now, but uh, um, that, is, that is good if the, if the court is able to, to do its work and has the right budget to do the work. Absolutely. I think you said very well, it is the nature of the ICC work that will always generate pushback. But I think what was remarkable was actually your leadership in going after some high-profile cases like Afghanistan and Palestine that your predecessors had not really been prepared to touch. That's why there was so much focus on Africa. And I think that is something that must be underscored because I think it gave more you know, credibility to the court that we finally were um, seeing some action, some egregious you know, violation on, of, of your human rights. Um, and, and I want to actually touch on something else where you've shown a lot of leadership, which has been your focus on sexual and gender-based violence. You launched a policy paper, you know, ensuring that victims have a voice and, and you were involved in the high-profile ongoing trial in 2021. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the considerations of conflict-related sexual violence evolve within the ICC? Um, I saw my, my, my role as ICC prosecutor as an opportunity. Having worked uh, in this field uh, for, for so long, having had some experience uh, even at the ICTR, you will see and you will note that sexual violence in times of conflict is prevalent. And no matter what has been done, Unfortunately, even today's, in today's conflicts, you find that there is still a fair share of sexual violence, uh, sexual crimes being committed. And unfortunately, um, a lot has been done, but unfortunately, um, I think I, I saw that there's still so much more to be done because these are the type, type of crimes that are underreported, that you find that the victims of the crimes do not feel safe or comfortable to come forward because they themselves will actually be ostracized. They will be re-victimized for having been raped. 
this is a this is a fact that we we all know so they prefer to suffer in silence and i thought just one year into my mandate as prosecutor i thought that i am going to use this opportunity to be able to highlight this kind of crimes and to see what can be done to at least uh, if we cannot eradicate it completely we will be able to do so much work that uh, we will definitely address and to also address it uh, systematically to be able to investigate it wherever it occurs during the conflicts that we were looking at to be able to also put in place strategies that victims of these crimes will be able to come forward and talk about these crimes and also know that they have the confidence of the system that they can be protected by the system and that uh, they will not be re-victimized for only coming out with what has happened to them and this was one of the motivations i had for coming out with the uh, policy on sexual and gender-based crimes in 2014 it was launched and this was a policy that i made a lot of consultations a lot of consultations with so many uh, states parties, with uh, NGOs, with academia, with many who, who were interested, especially in this uh, type of, types of crimes, and were very much interested in ensuring that we, it is stopped. So this policy came out. But also, uh, I, I realized that launching a policy and at least showing uh, the world how we intended to handle this uh, uh, type of crimes it was also much more important to implement it. To implement it and also to ensure that my investigators, my prosecutors take it fully on board and we're fully trained to be able to apply uh, this, uh, the, print, the, the policies that we have put in place in the investigations and the prosecutions of the crime. So I tried to have a gender, gender perspective, a gender-centered approach to every stage of the investigations, from the time of preliminary examination, even up to appeals. And this, my office uh, at the time made sure that this was applied. So in all the cases that we brought, uh, that, that we charged for sexual and gender-based crimes because we were able to investigate it, um, I think that we've left a good record. And you mentioned Ongwen. I think today or tomorrow is the, is the appeal judgment in that particular case. Uh, we charged uh, Ongwen, but we also charged in uh, Boston Taganda and several other cases for uh, sexual and gender-based crimes. Because I think it is something that we need to uh, address. We needed to address as an office and uh, also especially having the opportunity to be prosecutor of the ICC to be able to apply those standards. And also for the rest of, uh, uh, for the state parties, to also look to ICC on how it is handling these cases so that they could also apply, apply, apply it domestically. There is no doubt that your focus and your determination you know, to see an attention placed by the court on um, you know, sexual violence was uh, hugely welcome by a number of us who work on this yeah. issue. It was yeah, novel and much needed. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my questions and then I'll come to the audience, but I want to ask you um, one more question. I mean, we are seeing a really deep and I would say very worrying um, crisis of multilateralism 
mean, of international norms on, uh, on human rights. Mm -hmm. Where do you think there should be energy placed to strengthen international cooperation, especially around justice issues? Um, I think today, Sarah, what we are saying, um, I believe that we have to double, double up our efforts on trying to address justice issues. You rightly said, multilateralism is under attack. And it is only us that could also push back on this attack and ensure that uh, we continue to fight for, for what is important, especially in the area of justice. Um, I don't think it's a cliche when we say that there is no peace without justice. It is very, very true. What we see, if really uh, there is no justice, we, we just see a cycle of violence. It, it, it happens and it repeats itself because those who have dared to take those uh, actions, who, have, who perpetrate these crimes, when they see that there is, no, uh, there is impurity and there is no accountability for their, for their actions, they will continue to do it. And those, the others who, who were thinking about doing it will see that there is nothing to stop them from also doing it. So we have this vicious cycle in which these crimes continue to, to happen and there is not much uh, done to address it. This is why uh, I, I have been advocating for working together. No one institution, no one person can address this alone. We need to have uh, various institutions coming, coming in with their various expertise, but collaborating, ensuring that every angle that is needed <clears throat> to address uh, justice issues in any particular conflict is there, and that it is doing the work that it is supposed to do. This is what um, I believe we, we need to do, to be very strategic, to also be very focused, to see where the problems are, to see where the challenges are, and to see how best we are able to address them. Um, otherwise, if we work in silos, we all know what the problems are. We have seen it. We've seen the challenges. We have seen those who think that they can just uh, commit crimes as they wish. They can challenge institutions that have been put in place to address crimes, that they can do whatever they want and challenge the status quo. They are there and we have seen them. But the message that we have to continue to, to show them is that if you do the crime, you're going to be held responsible for it. And this is why working together, different institutions, but working together, having a focus to ensure that the law must rule, that there must be justice, that those who commit these, these crimes will be held accountable, that victims can actually look up to institutions and say that, I believe that justice can be done by this institution or by even my domestic jurisdiction. This is, what, this is the hope that we have to give to the victims. Um, we cannot let uh, never again ring hollow in the, time, in, the, in the ears of the victims and also those who have suffered these crimes. So working together is critical. And realizing that multilateralism is under attack and doing things to address them is also critical. Thank you so much. Uh
it's time to open to questions from the audience. Um, so as I said before, please do put your questions in the chat. I can already see some, so I'll start putting them to you um, as they come in. Um, we have a question from uh, Pilar Domingo. She asks, um, what is or should be the role of the SEC in the Ethiopia peace process? And are there other historical moments or cases that reflect the ICC's previous engagement in similar issues? Um, the, the Ethiopia uh, conflict um, is also one other unfortunate one that is happening on the African continent. But one, one also has to look at uh, ICC's jurisdiction and the limitations of those jurisdictions. I know many people have accused the ICC over the years for not intervening in various places. Syria is an example because uh, it's double standards, but it is not. It is because the ICC does not have jurisdiction because Syria in that particular case is not a state party. And in, in Ethiopia as well, Ethiopia is not a state party to the Rome Statute. Therefore, um, ICC cannot just intervene on the territory of Ethiopia to, um, to, do, uh, to take action. The only ways, um, and I just want to be very clear about that, the only ways in which the ICC could have intervened in, um, in Ethiopia would be if Ethiopia were a state party, which it is not, or if Ethiopia decided to make a declaration and accept ICC's jurisdiction, as has been done previously, um, uh, even in Ukraine, this has happened, um, then ICC would have been able to intervene, but I do not see that happening, uh, accepting ICC's jurisdiction by ICC. And another way would have been if the UN Security Council decided to refer the situation in Ethiopia to the ICC. This is what the law says for ICC to be able to intervene. Without that, the ICC is not able to. So it is not a choice that ICC decided to just keep quiet regarding Ethiopia is because there are limitations to its jurisdiction. And these are the ways, as I explained, that uh, uh, could have assisted for um, ICC to be able to uh, intervene in, in the conflict in Ethiopia. Absolutely. Um, we have another question from Laura Walker. Uh, she says, COVID-19 brought significant obstacles to the functioning of the ICC, um, especially in terms of fieldwork and carrying out trials. How has this impacted the ability of the, war, the court to fulfill its role? You have no idea. <laughs> I, I recall that, uh, well, in 2019, when uh, COVID broke and... Uh, of course, at that time, in December, at that time, the restrictions were not yet in place. But come 2020, we realized that, okay, this is what we are going into. And ICC, like many other institutions, we had to also uh, shut down completely. We had to shut down and uh, not, not, not go to the office. But we decided that we could not, we will not put pens down and that we will, we will completely stop working. So we tried to put in place, uh, um, I, I tried with my team to put in place ways in which we would be able to still continue working, still try to do uh, our investigations, um, still try to see how we could contact witnesses. Of course, at the time, um, this, uh, I mean, uh, 
electronically contacting uh, people had also, we had our, our difficulties because in the areas that we were investigating was also uh, sometimes technologically um, had uh, disadvantages. So it was a little bit difficult, but we were in the end able to, just to tell you that work this not, did not stop. I think we were able to get, uh, I was able to get, uh, I think about two or three people arrested and surrendered to the ICC during this period and to also start uh, different cases and to conclude investigations and bring them before the, uh, the ICC despite the, the COVID. So that demonstrates that we did not stop. We just continued uh, working and whatever was possible for us to be able to do, we, we, we would jump on it. Of course, the safety of my staff was very, very important for me. Like also the safety of the people we had to meet and talk to, practice all the um, uh, COVID restrictions that were in place, and also ensure that those whom we talked to, like the victims, uh, etc., were also not uh, uh, disadvantaged because of the COVID. But uh, I can assure you that we did not stop working and we were able to do a lot, uh, both in uh, 2019, in, uh, in 2020 and in 2021, right up to the time that my mandate ended in 2021, we continued to work very hard despite the COVID. I can only imagine. Um, there's a really interesting question from Patti Kachidza. Um, she says, what advice would you give to young lawyers who would like to make a difference and follow your path in the ICC? Um, you know, I, I'm always very, very um, uh, happy when I, when I hear that uh, young lawyers are, are thinking in that light and are also wanting to, to go into international criminal justice. Because I believe the more we have, uh, the better in this field. Um, as I said, justice is very important, whether it is at the domestic level or at the international level. It is very, very important. <clears throat> and as individuals uh, um, who, who want to contribute to this area, it's, it's critically important that we, from the very beginning, we try to get things right. And one of the first things that I would say is that because this field is so challenging, it's so challenging and you come across so many difficulties, you must love to do what, you, what you're doing. You must love it. Um, it's, it's, it's that, that, is, that is very, very important. Because if you do not have the passion for it, easily you, um, you can get discouraged because there are so many challenges that come your way that sometimes you, you may just decide that, okay, why am I expending all this effort for this? So you must love it and you must want to see results and you must want to make a difference and you must want to see a more just world. So this is, these are some of the, the passions that I believe uh, young lawyers should have about, about this field. I can tell you that there are so many victims of this atrocity crimes that some of them have actually given hope, given up hope. And the only thing they look to, they look to institutions like the ICC for justice. And I believe that the ICC as an institution cannot let them down, should not let them down. So I would encourage uh, those young lawyers to, to, to really uh, stay focused in what they want to do. Of course, to uh, be able to 
uh, equip themselves, I call it. Equip themselves in the sense that they know the field, they know the area, they know uh, what is needed and wanted of, of them. Um, I, I don't want to say to study, <laughs> but um, actually you, you really must uh, equip yourself and know this field and be able to contribute to, to it and be serious and focus about it, uh, uh, going into it. This is, this is the advice that uh, I would give and encourage, I would encourage uh, as many young lawyers as possible who want to go into this field, that they should do so. I, I, I think it is really uh, a very noble area, uh, a very noble cause to want to have justice for, uh, unfortunately, uh, the atrocities that are being committed uh, around the world and to want to see that vict victims of these crimes uh, also, in the end, um, uh, see justice is being done. You're clearly encouraging young lawyers, you know, to yeah. follow your path, but just uh, <laughs> showing so much leadership. I have a, a slightly long question from Ole, no surname given. Um, several human rights organizations have filed criminal charges with the SEC for the most serious crimes against refugees in Libya and accused mm -hmm. the EU of collaboration. Mm -hmm. With regards to the EU's defense against refugees, they say that European actors, by trying to prevent flight from Libya, have in numerous cases made crimes against humanity possible. How do you see this, and does the ICC investigate this? Well, I can tell you that Libya is one of those cases that had been referred by the um, uh, UN Security Council to the ICC. And this is a case that I dealt with. Um, I'm, I'm sure you have seen over the years where, uh, that I have been reporting to the UN Security Council every six months on the steps that the, uh, the, the court, the ICC, my office in particular, was taking regarding uh, that situation. I'm, I'm also sure that you have seen the warrants of arrest that have issued in the, in the case in Libya. And I know that uh, at the ICC currently, this, uh, the case is continuing and it is uh, being, uh, being done. It is being handled by my, by my successor. Um, one of the areas that I have told, uh, the, the, I mean, that I decided to look into more closely was the issue of migration. And, uh, and I have, I, I believe in the last four or so of my reports to the UN Security Council, I have, have reported on how I have made this issue a priority in my investigations in, in Libya. And this was going on and how I was also deciding to um, uh, collaborate with certain, some European countries who were also um, interested in this to see how we could uh, hold people uh, who were trading in this, this aspect and, and unfortunately uh, several victims, how we could hold them to account. And that work was going on at the, at the ICC. So yes, it is, it is a, it's just a live case right now uh, at, the, at the court. Um, it's, it's, it's being handled. And again, I come back to the issue that it is not a matter that the ICC alone can take care of everything. Uh, it continues to need uh, collaboration with other partners, which I had already started the engagement with several uh, um, countries, actually. And I was also seeking assistance 
with several countries to be able to handle that issue of migration. Um, thank you so much. Um, question sort of beyond the ICC um, from John Robson. Um, the International Criminal Tribunal of Rwanda was criticized for having failed victims and survivors and for having a huge cost for proceedings. What would be your response to critics of the tribunal? Well, I mean, um, these institutions, uh, unfortunately, uh, there will be criticisms. There, there, there would be criticisms no matter what. And if you recall, one of the advantages that uh, the ICC has is that the issue of victim participation uh, is, is, is something that happens at the ICC. This was not the same thing with the ad hoc tribunals. The ad hoc tribunals, uh, the ICTR, was uh, also was one of those tribunals in, in which you, you, you have uh, the traditional uh, prosecution of cases in which victims would only ap uh, appear at the court as witnesses to give evidence. Whereas in the ICC, victims actually are participants in the proceedings. So this was, uh, this, they had the right to participate and also to present their views before the judges as, as, a, as a process before the ICC. This was not happening at the uh, of tribunals. And I think this was one of the, the reasons that led to the uh, criticism that was leveled against uh, the ICTR, the ICTI as ad hoc tribunals, because they did not uh, um, have this victim participation aspect. And of course, uh, it's, 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 uh, international criminal justice um, can sometimes take very long, can take very long. And uh, this was also one of the criticisms that was leveled against the, um, the, the court, against the, the, the tribunals. And uh, rightfully uh, or, or, or not, um, I, I, would, I would really say that uh, um, being one of the um, uh, ad hoc tribunals with also the several challenges that it faced, including uh, budget, um, I think uh, the length of time that it took, perhaps much more could have been done to stem that length of time, but unfortunately it was there. And this was seen as, uh, as uh, something that, uh, um, as a criticism against, uh, it, the, the court was heavily, the tribunals were heavily criticized for that. Well, thanks for being so candid with, uh, with your answer. Um, I have a question for Lisa Denny, uh, something that's very dear to my heart and I'm sure you'll enjoy addressing. The SEC recently launched its first court-wide gender equality and workplace culture strategy. There is growing research on the gendered experience of being a judge or a prosecutor. Among the challenges you've seen in your role or in the experience of women judges in the SEC, what would you say are particular gender challenges or challenges of being a woman working in this space and at this level? Um, you know, I, one, of the, one of the things that I, I, I really hardly um, thought about was my gender. And I'm not saying I'm very happy to be a woman, and, uh, but I, I thought that what was more important for me was to um, uh, show the leadership that was required of me, uh, despite my gender, 
and to also uh, make sure that uh, we take the court to the next level. You know, uh, it was, for me, that was important. And, and that to demonstrate that despite you being a woman, you being a man, what was important is do your work and take this court to the next level. This is, uh, for me, this was uh, critically important. Of course, there are, you will meet, um, you will come across those people who, despite themselves, will not be able to accept the fact that uh, it's a woman, it's, uh, the woman is leading. You will come across those people. Uh, but I, I usually just um, feel sorry for those people because I, I just think that uh, uh, you know, something is missing uh, with them. But I don't give them the, the, the credence. I don't, I don't uh, focus my attention on those. I, I prefer to have those who will help for us to push the mandate forward, those who will empower to push the mandate forward, and uh, those naysayers to, to, to really uh, try. Of course, I, I think you, you cannot ignore them completely, but perhaps make efforts to try that, to bring them out from the place that they are. It's, it's a very uh, um, a, a negative spot that uh, having that negative spot is not going to allow or it's not going to help the overall mandate. For me, the overall mandate is what was important. It was never about me as a person. It was also about uh, as, as the work that we needed to do. And uh, that's what I tried to do. Thanks. Um, a question that I was expecting at one point would come from Steve Crenshaw. Can you imagine circumstances where Putin or other senior Russian leaders might end up at the ICC? Or assuming that is impossible because of the UN Security Council veto, how and where can you imagine that such accountability could come? Is a special tribunal practical, desirable, or what else if not? Well, what, what, I, what I do see, uh, of course, at the moment, I know the ICC is working on the uh, Ukraine referral. But what I have seen is the various collaborative efforts that are and initiatives that have been taken to bring accountability. Um, even uh, with the crime of aggression, which um, you know, international jurists uh, uh, um, were all trying to figure out how that could, uh, we'll be able to work in the context of uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict. So at the moment, I can tell you that uh, with all these initiatives that are going on and this collaboration that is going on, which at the beginning of my intervention I did talk about, I believe that a solution can be found in the end. Um, and, uh, and this could, this could be, uh, be helpful. Of course, um, I cannot right now talk about who should be charged and who should not be charged because uh, um, as a lawyer, I, I, I shouldn't do that without uh, all the evidence that I need. But uh, certainly, it's a situation that is a very serious situation in which I think already it has been determined that serious crimes have been committed, war crimes have been committed, and uh, it is a situation that deserves to be looked into, not by one area, not by one person, not by one institution, but to do a collaborative effort and be able to bring to justice those who, have, who are held eventually responsible for committing these crimes. 
Thank you very much. I have another question. We're nearing the end, but I can still squeeze in a couple. So a question from Mark Weston. You made the point that without justice, cycles of violence will continue. But what do you think about the converse argument that those who have committed atrocities and are still in power, for example, the military junta in Sudan, are less likely to stand down from power given that they face the threat of prosecution at the ICC? I must say, I was uh, deeply involved in these processes and was working in Sudan at the time of that. <laughs> and these yeah. questions came up all the time. Yes. Uh, well, you have, you have seen my stance uh, whilst I was uh, the prosecutor of the ICC regarding pushing for justice. Um, uh, for many years, this has been uh, elusive for the ICC. Um, you know all the problems that we had gone through um, especially with the arrest of uh, former President al-Bashir and uh, also um, the, the various efforts that we have made to uh, arrest him from different places, including, unfortunately, South Africa. Um, so the efforts were there all the time, and Sudan had completely shut down and said it was not going to cooperate with the ICC. But you also saw that as soon as the government uh, uh, in, in Sudan changed, and uh, President Bashir, former President Bashir, was arrested. Um, one of the first things I did was to engage with the new leaders uh, in Sudan and to call for the arrest uh, of not only President Bashir, but also other indictees of the ICC for them to be surrendered to the ICC. To the ICC. And in the meantime, people like uh, Ali Khushayk, I was able to, with my team, negotiate for his surrender to the ICC. This is just to demonstrate to you that I believe that once we had gone through the process of investigating and identifying uh, people and warrants of arrest were issued against them, I think their rightful place to be was at the ICC. And up to the time I left, this is what I was uh, working on uh, for, for those people who were indicted by the ICC to be brought to, be, to the ICC to, to, to be tried. That does not mean that one could not also explore other means in which uh, the option of impunity was not on the table. Uh, because there is a possibility of complementarity also being at work. Uh, these are also other areas that I explored with the new government uh, uh, in Sudan. Unfortunately, the way things have been going, I mean, since, since last year, and the coup and everything, I, I don't... Uh, I don't think it's, 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 it's in a good place at the moment, especially with regard to accountability. But I cannot say much because uh, um, uh, my successor is there. And I think that he is also um, dealing with these issues and uh, he is uh, um, engaging with the, with the new leadership to see what, uh, what can be done. But um, impunity cannot be an option cannot be an option, whether it is in Sudan or elsewhere. Impunity should not happen. Absolutely. Well, one uh, last question. I see more questions coming in. Well, if we quick, we can do two, but one last question, um, because I know you need to leave it on time, so I'll, I'll just put this one to you. Um, given this is, uh, there is no name associated with the questions, um, um, someone that is not given their affiliation. Uh, given the challenges to multilateralism you described before, um, what do you think the future of the ICC is? 
I, I believe that uh, uh, definitely the ICC has a promising future. Um, and one thing that we have to bear in mind is that um, the ICC was created so that uh, domestic jurisdictions can also be strengthened. I, I think ICC taking all the cases is not a success for the ICC. What instead would be successful is that domestic jurisdictions are working so well that they would not need the ICC's intervention. I think this was the main or uh, the grand idea behind creating the ICC. But that is going to take time. That will take time before it happens. Because for whether it's lack of political will or whether it's lack of capacity, we find that domestic jurisdictions will not take that responsibility easily. It will take time. And that is why it is extremely important for the ICC to be strengthened, for the ICC to be supported, to, be, um, to, to give the, the court the cooperation that it needs to be able to, in the interim, be able to address these serious atrocities that are committed, especially when there is a problem with the domestic jurisdiction uh, taking on these cases. So I do think that ICC should, um, I mean, what I believe was that we should always step up to the plate and be able to, um, to, to, to do our work and address these crimes as long as there is that gap, that impunity gap at the domestic level. We should be able to uh, be in a position to address it, uh, address the crimes that take place. So I, I have hopes. I have hopes for the court. Um, I, I believe that it's not going to uh, wither into oblivion. On the other hand, I believe that it's going to gather more strength and uh, its uh, credibility, I believe, has been uh, established already. And it is just to take it to the next level, to take, take, take um, the ICC to the next level and be able to deal with these crimes until domestic jurisdictions are able to take it on themselves. But thank you so much, Dr. Bensuda, for not just your insights today, but I would say above all for, for the leadership that you have demonstrated, uh, both as chief prosecutor of the SEC, but actually throughout your career, you know, trying really to make sure that justice would prevail. And as you said very powerfully, the victims can truly be given hope. Um, I mean, you said it very eloquently, impunity, cannot be an option. And, and I think, you know, I would like to thank you on behalf of many of us here online today that have been following your work for a long time because you've ins you have inspired and continue to inspire a lot of us to work hard to make sure that there is accountability for crimes committed and that victims truly can have hope. Um, well, let me also thank everyone who has uh, uh, engaged, you know, so passionately in the discussions for the questions you've put uh, to Dr. Pensuda. Uh, there'll be a record of the discussion available, you know, to watch again or share online in 24 hours. Um, and let me also take this opportunity to warm, uh, to, uh, to wish both uh, Dr. Pensuda and everyone online very warm wishes for the holiday season. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. I've uh, also, um, I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be able to uh, talk about, share my experiences uh, with, the, with yourself and, and the audience. And I thank you for giving me that opportunity.
It was our pleasure. I hope next time we can do that in person. We look forward to it. Indeed, indeed. It would be nice to do it in person. But it will... Thank you. <laughs> well, until next time, goodbye Bye -bye. to everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.